For the Los Angeles Review of Books, I'm Colin Marshall, coming to you this time from Mexico City here in Colonia Condesa, sitting down with Gabriela Jauregui, who is a writer, a poet, the author of the poetry collection Controlled Decay, and she's written pieces on matters artistic and literary for various publications. Gabriela, growing up here in Mexico City, when did you begin to realize there was a rich literary world here? Well, I think that growing up, um, I grew up in Coyoacán, which is uh, in the south part of the city, and it's uh, sort of very rich, culturally speaking. And it's also a place where, you know, Octavio Paz used to live and all these writers used to hang out at. And so I was always surrounded by books, and there was, now it's closed, sadly, there was a very a classic bookstore in mm. the in the Zocalo, or the centro of Coyoacán. And so I would walk there when I was very small with my mother or, you know, eventually when I was a teenager with my school friends and we would, you know, sneak a cigarette and, and a coffee and look at the books. So, <laughs> you know, and you realize that there were other people, older people there who were, you know, well-known writers such as Margot Glantz and other, m- many people lived in that neighborhood. This is oh. another neighborhood where writers used to live or still live. And so it was very... You know, it was like, I don't know, growing up in a certain part of New York or growing up in a certain neighborhood and and certain kinds of cities where you just realize there is that culture mm. surrounding you and, and you just live it in an everyday way. Right. Uh, you know, you, it's not something that's in a book on a bookshelf in your school library. It's just right there next to you smoking and, and drinking a coffee, you know, and, and smelling weird if it's a, you know, old, old man or whatever. So that's how, uh, I felt more exposed to, to culture since an early age, I would say. Coyoacan now it's, it's known by visitors as the the former home of of, of Trotsky and, and Frida Kahlo. No, I mean, there's, they think of it as a historical artistic heritage, but it was also a literary place. Yeah, and uh, as I mentioned, I mean, I used to when I was very small, my you know sort of playground was Frida Kahlo's house <laughs> because her her patio it was open to the public as it is now, but it was less of a structured museum back then. Mm-hmm. So I could just go and play in her patio and mm-hmm. look at the. There's a beautiful uh, fountain with um, with. Uh, ranitas in it with um frogs um, the english is failing me um and so i would just play there and uh it was you know it was really great to feel that that was a part of just your playground you know mm. and trotsky's house was like the haunted house because it's such a creepy place yeah, so still so, bullet holes in it yeah so we would go there and you know look at the ice pick and you know <laughs> uh, uh, when we were older with my friends and um and like i said it was uh, also where octavio paz lived where margot glance lives etc mm. so all these places you would walk by um the house of el indio fernandez who's a great filmmaker um you would just walk by them and you would know or you know your parents would tell you or your neighbors would know and mm. so it was yeah it was definitely a, a cultural place in the broadest sense, arts, visual arts, and um, and literary arts, etc. Now, we're sitting here in your home surrounded by both English language and Spanish language literature, and I'm sure those are not the only two languages represented here. Were you? Did you grow up among the literature of various languages? Well, not, in, not really, yes and no. Um, my mother and my grandmother are avid readers, oh. and uh, they 
loved reading and still love reading in English mostly, mm. even more so than Spanish, even though they're both Mexican. Um, and so that's how I got exposed to the English language at an early age. And they would read me, you know, fairy tales and uh, nursery rhymes, etc. in English. Mm. Um, at the same time as I'm living here. So of course I was also reading in Spanish and spoken, you know, spoken to and speaking in Spanish, etc. Mm. And then I went to the French school. Mm. Um, so the third language is French. And, uh, you know, since kindergarten, I got exposed to that. So then I have my collection of, you know, all the French classics and all the things we had to read in uh, primary school and junior high, high school, mm. etc., which are the staples of French kids, but were the staples of me at the same time as all these other things. So mm. it, was, it was funny. Were these ever, the, these three literatures and three languages, were these ever separate for you? Did you think of them as three different types of reading, or was it all just reading, all in languages you were exposed to all the time? I would say it was, it was all just reading, mm -hmm. then because I was com constantly um, exposed to them, to all three. Also, you know, in Mexico, um, as opposed to other countries like Spain, films and things like that aren't dubbed mm -hmm. mostly. Um, so even as a kid, just pop culture, you know, you would listen to Michael Jackson and Madonna and, you know, on the radio all the time. And you would go to Star Wars or, you know, Little Orphan Annie or whatever, mm -hmm. um, you know, Mary Poppins, whatever the, the films you watch when you're a kid. Um, and a lot of them weren't dubbed. Mm -hmm. And so you were exposed to English a lot. Um, so, so everybody gets it no matter what. Everybody gets English input. Whether or not they do anything with that is their choice. Right. Mm. I mean, and of course, some people just listen to the radio and they don't, you know, they don't speak it. And so they don't understand. But right. I think if you, you must have had this experience, almost anyone and everyone at all levels of society knows a little bit of English mm. because, you know, it's the sort of cultural, um, the, the input that we're getting um, from Hollywood, from, like I said, even mainstream pop things are, are in English a lot. And so the radio, et cetera. Um, and again, movies, et cetera. So even if they don't speak it, they, they speak some of it or they know a couple of, you know, words or funny replies or whatever. <laughs> right. It's, it's an interesting, it's interesting to view the reactions when I go around town here, because I do, I live in Los Angeles, so I do use Spanish every day in my regular life, and so I want to use it down here as well. And you, I do get the sense that some people kind of want to try speaking English to me, but don't to look at me know for sure that I speak it myself. I, I don't know what the tells are for who speaks English, but I think, I guess I give off the vibe that I probably speak English, but might not. I don't know, but in the literary world here, tell me if this is true, since you're so connected to it. It seems fairly common for literary people, especially our age, to have to have gone to English language school from the beginning, or bilingual school, or to, to have a, an educational experience that was multilingual from the beginning. Do you think that's true? Well, on the one hand, I want to say it's a class issue um, because anyone who is middle class, let's say, went to probably went to a school that had some English or had, uh, you know, extracurricular English classes as one would, you know, painting or ballet or whatever. Um, but then um, I, th there are also 
you know, many writers who are not from the, you know, middle class and who have struggled perhaps, um, to learn English, but think it necessary and think it part of their, you know, cultural sort of expansion. Um, But I would say, yeah, it depends. It's it's definitely the from an early age and educationally, I think it's a class issue. Mm-hmm. Um, although now public schools, just you know, basic M- Mexican public schools, have S- Spanish um, English language classes. The very first time I came to Mexico City, I went book shopping almost immediately to, you know, the branches of. El Pendulo, say, or to the used bookstores on Donceles downtown. And it was such an exciting experience that I vowed never again to read a translation of a Spanish-language work to only to improve my reading skills by vowing, vowing only to read Spanish fiction in the original or nonfiction. It's, you know, I read it very slowly, but I'm getting the sense that now is a very exciting time in, in Spanish-language literature. Do you, do you think that's true? I do. I think that there's... Um Since a few years, and I think it started in Argentina while the the economic crisis happened there, Um, but it's spread out to the entire Latin America, I I would say Latin American region. Um, We'll see what happens with Spain now with their crisis. But um, I think it started there and it spread this thing of having small presses and people taking risks and people deciding that they were tired of reading, you know, bestsellers and paying a lot of money to read bestsellers. Because mm-hmm. I don't know if, if you look at, at books here, um, you know, your average translation of a bestseller or even, you know, your average um, local writer who's a very commercial writer, those editions are quite expensive. It can be like 250 pesos. Yeah, which mm-hmm. is a lot for, you know, for yeah. people here. So, I wouldn't pay it. <laughs> Neither would I, especially knowing. Well, I mean, perhaps some of it is good, but, you know, let's not be too snobbish. But um, and so I feel like a lot of people were, were dissatisfied with what was there and with the diversity of things that were offered. It was very, you know, one kind of thing. And then if not, you had to go to Don Celes to dig up amazing old, you know, editions of things. Mm. So I think that a lot of people decided, well, let's just start our own press. And, you know, from th- starting with things like cartonera presses, which is just photocopies and a piece of cardboard and that's it, mm. to tons of independent presses, including Juan Carlos Cano. And um, there, th- it's not just him, it's a group of people um, who do mangos de hacha. Mm. Or me and a g- group of friends started a press called Surplus. Mm. And there's another one called Tumbona that Viviana Benchushan and another group of people. And it's funny because they're all sort of collective, nice. um, collectively run. And so all of us, we just, you know, decided, wow, we can't find these kinds of books here. Mm. And we're all very different and focused on different things. And we all just decided, well, let's just do it, mm. you know, and take the leap. And of course, it's, you know, not a business at all. It's not um, bestsellers and anything like that. But I think we, we're all surviving, which is interesting, and, um, and thriving. I think there are more and more independent presses. So, yeah, I think it's a very exciting time to, to read in Spanish. Mm. Tell me about, I was curious a little bit about the the lack of what made you want to, you and your collaborators want to found Surplus. For us specifically, um, we thought that there were there was a lack of affordable, um, well-designed uh, books that were both aesthetically and politically um, 
I wouldn't say radical, but experimental, mm-hmm. let's say. Um, so things, you know, books that were engaged socially, but also aesthetically. Mm-hmm. So not just pamphlets and, and very, you know, militant literature, which is great, but, you know, wasn't exactly what we were interested. And also not just literature for literature's sake, which is also fine and interesting, mm-hmm. but that wasn't exactly what we were we were looking for either we wanted a mix of both mm. and and to to be able to find it in nice because you'll see also there's there's so very many books that are quite ugly <laughs> which is sad you know it's because it's, everywhere it's true yeah, yeah. Mm. so we were we were also looking to publish them something that was pretty or you know attractive and nice to read with good paper with you know design that would make holding the page agreeable or, or, you know mm-hmm. etc and also you know where you wouldn't be spending more on a book than you would on two packs of beer or something mm-hmm. <laughs> yes indeed that's that's an interesting comparison i you know, i wonder i don't know whether surplus books are shrink wrapped or not but why are books shrink wrapped here in mexico well, you know, when we started off, because we just started, we didn't even, we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know we had to get ISBNs and, you know, barcodes, etc. So, of course, we did. Um, and we, you know, had to learn and put stickers on because we hadn't pub- printed it with the ISBN or whatever, things like that. And it, that included shrink wrapping. So our first books were not shrink wrapped. Mm. And... After a while, we learned that it's actually very helpful to shrink wrap books here because of the distribution and transportation and oh. dust and things like that. And oh, I think I people see. people really like this idea of the pristine book that they get to open, you know, mm-hmm. like a mm-hmm. present at Christmas or something. <laughs> um, and if your books aren't shrink wrapped, they get dusty quickly. And then people, I feel like, shy away from them because they're just like, oh, maybe this has been opened. Is this really new? <laughs> you know what I right, mean? <laughs> right. This, somebody could have read this before. How do yeah. I know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Having having read your, your collection, Controlled Decay, I'll ask this. Is Do you consider poetry your your own primary form? I don't. Mm. <laughs> um, I'm a traitor to the genres, I would genres. say. Oh. <laughs> you know, or a transgenre sure. uh, person. I don't. I don't feel like a poet. You mm. know, with a P, with a capital P. I also don't feel like I'm a, just a what here would be called a narrador. You know, mm. who only writes. Um, in prose uh, and identifies as such or, you know, as one would uh, identify as a journalist or things like that. I just write in whatever form the writing needs to take. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's essays, sometimes it's short stories. Um, I have a long novel hidden in a little corner. (laughs) It's never ending. Um, And and then poetry when it needs to be poetry, you know? Do you write in whatever language you feel like you need to write in that's been an issue mm. it's it's a real question because um when i moved to la i had to sort of learn english in the sense that i spoke it and i read it and but i couldn't really write it mm. because i'd never really learned formal rules of grammar etc mm. so i had these 
insane run-on sentences because I was translating in my head yeah. from Spanish and Spanish. Can you, can you do that in Spanish? Run this. I, I have noticed this when I read Spanish novels. I do lose track of sentences sometimes. But are they are they longer? Yes, they mm. they are definitely longer. And same thing in French. There, mm. you just have these you know commas and commas, and you can keep going. Mm. And in English, that's called a run-on sentence. Right. We don't which, like that so much in English-speaking countries. No. So I had this fantastic Shakespeare teacher who realized, okay, she's saying something interesting, but she just doesn't know how to say it. And she spent an entire semester with me in Los Angeles drinking white wine because I think she was probably wanted to shoot herself in the face, mm. but helping me super generously to learn how write out a proper sentence mm. in English because she she was really encouraging for me to get my PhD, etc. And she said, you know, you have to compete with English language native speakers who will know this inside and out because they, they've learned this since kindergarten. Mm. So let's work on this. And so, you know, she would just be like, no, no, period, period, stop, stop. And I was like, okay, okay, period. And then she's like, okay, maybe a semicolon here, but really, period. You know, so mm. I learned this English way um, of writing. And so I started writing in English mm. when I was there. And because out of necessity, let's say, because of school, and eventually out of pleasure. And I discovered the pleasure of, of writing in a language that isn't quite your own mm. because you, you find a certain freedom. You're less, um, or at least I felt less uh, indebted to this mother tongue and this <laughs> yes. tradition. and the whole know. heritage that stretches back. Exactly. And of course, there's also heritage in English, but it, it felt less heavy on my shoulders somehow. And so it felt really liberating. So I started writing in English and, you know, I finished that collection and now I have another poetry collection and I started my novel in English. And the reason it's taken forever, it's like, I can't make up my mind in which language this needs to be written. And then once I moved back here, I, you know, just by um, osmosis almost, I felt like I needed to start in Spanish again. Mm. And, and then it's another whole new learning process because again, I went to a French school. So Spanish isn't really the language that I super learned formally. Mm. And then I unlearned it because I focused on English. So then it's another, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> wow. It's like tangling and untangling knots. And then you're happy to have some of those knots and then other knots are just, you know, you get caught up in and you need mm. to really like work through them. Did this process of learning the finer points of English teach you anything about what the advantages of the English language are? I think native speakers of English don't often hold the language in a very high regard. It's sort of like, this is a very common language in the world, but it's maybe we think it's clunky or uh, improvi not improvised, but it grew in such a way that doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't know. what 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 is your feeling on that? I actually love that. And precisely sometimes, you know, these weird exceptions and these non-rules. Yes. What I do love about it is it is that it is a pastiche there. I just said a French word, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and, and then we have lots of Germanic words. And then there's some, you know, Nord, Nordic, you know, I don't know, com coming from Swedish and things like that. And, and these Kenning things where you can agglomerate words and invent words. Mm. I think it's a very... Um, it's a language that keeps itself young more than other languages mm. in general. I, I mean, the French government tries not to keep their language young at any cost. Yeah. And, and, you know, for instance, um, 
hyphenations and you can just hyphenate, you know, this long thing and it becomes this big word. And it's so much fun, at least for me. And it's also a language with a tremendous vocabulary mm. for the same reasons. Mm. Um, so because it, it's sort of, it's a pirate language in a way, you yes. know, it appropriates from all these other languages. Mm. And so it has many more words, let's say, than the Spanish language. And so that's very fun. And it's also very fun to, to be, to feel free to create words because you can, mm. um, and, and can you do, not make up words in Spanish. doesn't work so well. You know, it's, you can do it, but it's less accepted, mm. widely accepted uh, than in English, mm. you know, in English, you can just really do it and, and, you know, write a serious paper or an academic thing. And, you know, you, you might explain it or you might put it in quotation marks or whatever, but mm. you just go for it. And, and Spanish, in an academic world, let's say people would probably frown upon it, or you know, you don't have hyphened words at all, hyphenated words. Um, so, you know, it's uh, at least to me, perhaps again because it's um, you know my older tongue, it feels slightly more rigid, and English felt much more fluid, and I felt I had the right to play with it. How much does being involved in multiple languages for a long time make you interested? in poetry if that sounds like an odd question perhaps but i would think that having so many examples of language gets you thinking instinctually about the mechanics of language which makes you interested in poetry because that's so it's so involved with how language works i think it's true i think that um because you have this distance somehow all of a sudden because you're involved in all these languages but then at the same time none of them actually feels a hundred percent yours mm -hmm. you you have this distance and therefore you look at how funny or fun or bizarre or stiff mm -hmm. you know certain things about certain languages can be and i think that poetry is a good it's perhaps the ideal way to explore that and play with that mm -hmm. and of course in english you have the poets called language poets who really focused on that but you also have concrete poetry mm -hmm. that plays with that um and you know different different or very sound sound oriented poetry and um an example that i love is this uh poet um, i believe he was romanian i hope i'm not mistaking his yeah i think he's romanian his name's gerasim luca mm -hmm. and he went to move to france as a refugee and um that's when he re he started playing. He's a great poet, mm. and played with the sounds of language in fantastic ways. Because I think he was such a f he heard things that native speakers don't hear anymore puns or funny things about language. And I think that happens sometimes with with me, or hopefully, you know, I don't lose that. Mm. So never never be too much of a master. So you you know you can always be a, a sort of beginner who hears these things. One language gives you perspective on the others then. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, so you can step out of one and sort of into the next, you know, jump from one swimming pool to the other and therefore feel the variations in temperature, let's say. Mm. You mentioned a bit earlier, Juan Carlos Cano, the architect slash poet. And I, I was talking with him earlier this week. I didn't even know he was a poet. I just talked to him for an hour two hours as an architect, and now you reveal to me, oh, he's also got a press, he's a poet. And we spoke earlier off mic about how it seems to me in Latin America, you never know who the poets are, 
anybody could be one. It's it's always a surprise. In the United States, the poets project themselves as poets insistently. Here, it's more fluid. How correct is that? Is it correct at all? Well, I guess I'm, I'm sure it depends on the poet. Mm. I mean, there are certain... And perhaps it's also a generation thing. I think there's perhaps some older poets who are very much poets and who recite poetry and who are you know wonderful writers. I'm not saying their writing isn't wonderful, but who are very much p capital p poets you know and and I think that because also now poetry who reads poetry sadly <laughs> you know it's not really um metier or you know something that you can live off of and and practice professionally uh every day and only that that and only that unless you're you know very much a government sponsored poetry or something yes. horrifying like that <laughs> um, so you have to do other things mm. so yes Juan Carlos maybe in a different life would be just a poet mm. but he's actually an architect and I think that brings all the more richness and makes his poetry all the better mm. you know people he collaborates with are work as translators in film and that's their day jobs, and then there are poets as well. Um, there are poets who, I don't know, who do all kinds of different activities. Uh, obviously, there's the more traditional, you know, university professors kind of thing. But most, I know another poet who's a TV writer. Mm. You know, it's different things, um, scientists, etc. So, yeah, you don't necessarily know who a poet is. Um, poets here wear other costumes or other hats yeah now you were born and raised in mexico but you mentioned that you studied in california what made you decide to go north to study it was a a fate you know mm. chance thing um it, i wanted initially i had gone to new york but my then partner um got a grant to go to california so i just you know decided great Let's mm. let's do that. And I didn't know anything about Los Angeles. I had only been once, you know, when I was mm. a child with my parents and went to Disneyland. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, that's even in Orange County. So it's like it's you really you didn't even get there. <laughs> exactly. So I think we stayed in L.A. and drove mm. down there, and that was, you know, I remember Santa Monica and like some, you know, Malibu and driving around the coast or whatever, and then dro- driving up north um, with my family, but. That was it. Mm. I had no clue. So when I got there, I was I was quite surprised. I you know it was sprawling, and in a way, it's very much like Mexico City. But at first, I didn't expect it to be. And it, I feel like LA is a city that reveals its charms and secrets slowly. It's mm. not like New York, yeah. where everything's right there, and you just walk one block and you know exactly where the restaurant is, where your friends mm-hmm. hang out and have drinks, you know, the bar mm-hmm. that you need to be at or whatever. Right. It's all right there. Mm-hmm. L.A., you have to drive around, and it turns out the most fantastic restaurant is in this horrifying strip mall that you would have never driven into because it's so ugly. Mm-hmm. And then, it, you know, you go in there, and it's a hole in the wall, and you discover the most, you know, delicious dishes you've ever tried. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, so so it's it's that sort of city. And so at first it was hard and then I just found, you know, it's secret and it's sort of unlocked that that part of it and I adore it and I miss it every day. <laughs> Los Angeles does require you to master it in some sense and that's what I like about it. It's what fascinates me is it does pose a challenge to you to figure it out. And I 
am still holding out. I haven't broken down and bought a car yet, but I, I, I feel that if I can, if I can not have one, not I, and I've somehow transcended. Uh, I've, I've reached a certain level of Los Angeles mastery. I don't know. Maybe I just don't want to spend the money. But Mexico City, do you think? Do you think Mexico City? Where does it fall on that spectrum of Los Angeles is hard to get to know, New York, you already know where you have to go, and you can just kind of walk around and find a place. Where is Mexico City on that spectrum? I, I feel like I can just drop myself down here, but then I feel like I can't may or shouldn't. I think it's sort of, it oscillates a little bit between the two. Mm. I think that um, it depends it depends on the neighborhood. Mm. So some neighborhoods are more that sort of New York vibe, for lack of a better <laughs> of a better way to describe it, where you just know, oh, here's you know five different cafes, ten different restaurants, eight different bars, mm. and just by looking at them, you know which one you would want to be at and which one you wouldn't want to be at, mm. and you just go there and have a drink and whatever. Um, but then you know it's a humongous city, again like LA. So you really need. If you want to explore other places than, you know, the five neighborhoods that are sort of here surrounding downtown, mm. let's say, and, and the Chapultepec area, if you really want to look at those neighborhoods, you really need to be enthusiastic, patient. Um, you hopefully know someone there who lives there who might recommend things or, uh, you know, you have a reason to go there, etc. So it's more in that sense, it becomes more like L.A. You know, if you didn't know that there are X, Y, and Z restaurants in Monterey Park, why would you go to Monterey Park? <laughs> yes, true. You know, or, you know, et cetera. So yeah. you just have a reason to go there and then you go there, or you have friends who live there and then you go there or family mm. or whatever. So there's that side of this place too. And like Mexico, uh, like LA, Mexico is a place where also people like to hang out at their, at their houses or apartments or, mm. you know, in their neighborhoods. So, it's not just about going out and eating out and staying out, et cetera. It's also about indoors and what happens behind, you know, the facades of places, mm. which is a very LA thing. You know, you're in your backyard and you're having a barbecue and you invite people over. It's not always about going out to restaurants. New York is much more that because space is so much more limited, I think, in time. Mm. So I think there's both things going on. And having grown up in, in Coyoacan in Mexico City and, this this area, you know, you you live through some of the decades that people look back and say, "Oh, those were the bad times in Mexico City, the '80s and '90s." How does that feel, having the you know the the whole time of your childhood and adolescence being called the the bad years of Mexico City? Were they so bad? I don't feel like they were so bad. I mean, the '80s, just historically speaking and politically speaking, it was still very much closed. You know, there was no. Um, or very little contact with the outside. But like I said, we still had, you know, Star Wars and, yes. <laughs> and Little Orphan Annie or whatever. Um, but there weren't, you know, there were, I remember these things like there were no M&Ms or things, you know, there were no American candies. They were all Mexican candies. M&Ms were called lunetas and they were the same colors and just a slightly different taste, of course. So it was all like, you know, locally made things that at that time we all sort of shunned and mm -hmm. you know whoever went to the states if someone was going to houston or wherever you would just 
beg that they bring you, you know, a box of nerds or a pack of M&Ms. And that was a super fancy gift. Mm, please, some you nerds know? and M&Ms. There, there's a word for that idea that the, the notion that the notion in Mexico that whatever is Mexican is by definition inferior, isn't there? Yeah, it's called malinchismo. That's right. And and it comes from the malinche who was, you know, Cortez's wife and who helped, let's say, the, you know, the colon, who helped the conquest of Mexico. Mm. Um, but it's not necessarily, it, the, the, her figure is much more complicated than that, actually. Mm. But the word comes from that mm. um, sort of folk version of her mm. figure. She's also a translator. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, there was, there was very much that in the 80s. Mm. And then I don't think that, I feel like the 90s were a really interesting period. Politically, again, it was very, it was turmoil. I mean, mm. there was the Zapatista uplifting. There were horrifying killings where towns were getting wiped out by um, the government, etc. And things were starting, we were starting to hear about this because I think that happened in the 70s and 80s all the time, mm. but people didn't hear about it because the state controlled, you know, the three TV channels, that was it, mm. and, you know, etc., etc., and in the 90s, things started to open up and therefore, you know, journalists started to, you know, video camera, you know, all the things that we know mm. <laughs> before internet even, but then with internet. So all of a sudden people taped these things and, you know, it was like the Rodney King, mm. but here, you know, and, and suddenly people heard what was going on. It was horrifying. At the same time, this opening was also letting people like Kurt, come and open up places and little artist run spaces popped up and so all of a sudden I felt like the city was thriving I remember being you know a teenager and going to see this show of contemporary Mexican artists at the Museum of Modern Art and it's all artists who are well known now um, they're in their early 40s but so they were a generation ahead of me and I remember looking at this and being like wow this is super cool. There's, ah, you know, there's this happening here. Yeah. Mm. So, and identifying with it and, and realizing that their references were the same, you know, ironic jokes to those eighties things or whatever. And, and so it was a transition period with all the positive and negative, but I don't really look at it as, as the dark years. Mm. I think probably the seventies and eighties slightly more, but, mm. but the nineties I think were very interesting times mm. Mm. and this this kurt you've mentioned is kurt hollander the uh, the author of a, a recent autobiography several ways to die in mexico city and he's a photographer and, and a filmmaker and he told me when i talked to him earlier i grew up in new york city in the 1970s mexico city was never going to scare me at all and you know despite there's 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 a lot of uh there, it still has a, a falsely scary reputation in the united states mexico city does but i, I want to know what what do you think the 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 literature coming out of Mexico City or Mexico has has reflected about this? It's I, when I was speaking with Diego Rabasa of of Sexto Piso Press, he he said a lot about his frustrations with the politics of Mexico and how he sees them. He sees that frustration reflected in what writers are saying now and what they can say, and and I wonder if this is an unprecedented time for that. 
Well, I don't think it's unprecedented. I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare say that mm. because I, I immediately thought of someone like Ibarwengoitia. Mm. I don't know if you've read him, Jorge Ibarwengoitia. He's a, mm. he wrote scathing, hilarious satires of of what was going on in Mexico, you know, in the fifties and sixties, um, and so. You know, it's something that still go. You know, th that's still very much a preoccupation right. of writers now. But I wouldn't say exclusively. But I think that there is a generation of very sort of um, not disenchanted, but almost uh, sometimes nihilistic, almost writers who are just like from very urban mm. and very dark. Let's mm. say, and so there is that, and very funny in in very you know ironic ways. Mm. So, but I, I I think that's probably always existed mm. um, as a part of you know the culture the counterculture of the city. And uh, tell me if I'm right or wrong about this, but it seems like writers have never been suppressed here in their criticism to the extent that say the Soviet union would suppress their, their critics. There's people have to some extent been able to criticize the regime here. Even I'm, I'm, I'm sure people, I'm sure not everybody went unpunished, but it's been, has it been more possible here? Well, I, I'll speak of today because I think that in the, again, the seventies were a very, I think, hard decade here. And there was very much, you know, there were very intense and, and subtle, elegant ways of do the of doing, of repressing people. Mm. And, and that's why they're referred to as the dirty wars because everything was sort of underground, you know, they, they would disappear people, etc. but not like in Argentina, not like in Chile, not like in the Soviet Union, to speak of two opposite, not like in Cuba, but still there was very much a, a, a sort of cloaked, veiled repression. Nowadays, I think, you know, it's more to do with the market, like, if you publish certain kinds of things or you write certain kinds of things, it'll be very hard to, for you to get published. Mm. But, hope, you know, and on a hopeful note, I think presses like Sexto Piso, all of us, independent presses from bigger ones like Sexto Piso to smaller ones like Surplus, Mangos de Hacha, Tumbona, mm. etc. That's, I think that's one of our reasons to exist is to publish precisely those kinds of things. Mm. Very openly critical and... um of, of the status quo, whatever that might be, not just politically speaking, I mean, aesthetically, etc. I do get the sense, and as I said, I've, I read Spanish very slowly and can only read so much Mexican literature as a result, but I get the sense that writers today, some of them express a kind of frustration that they see vast potential in Mexico, but see it quashed in a million ways. Did, do you get that sense? You know, I feel less quashed because um, I see the potential and I feel less frustrated, perhaps because I lived abroad for mm. so long. I mean, so many people sometimes fantasize. Again, it's it's sometimes it's malinchismo and sometimes it's just the grass is greener on the other side, you know. Mm. So many people are like, oh, look at the potholes in the city. God damn it. Or, you know, or, ah, oh, the metro is so dirty or whatever, you know, it's pretty clean it's compared pretty to clean. New York city. You've been yeah. there. <laughs> it smells like pee everywhere. It doesn't smell like pee here. Right. Yeah. The, the design is kind of cool. Retro now in yeah, New Mexico city. Retro orange. Mm -hmm. Um, so, 
Yeah, but those kinds of things maybe become very grating if if you mm. haven't had the chance or the perspective to leave mm. and and experience somewhere else, except on vacation, perhaps. And mm. vacations are always fantastic, and you don't really notice that you know the subway in New York smells like pee because it's you're in New York and it's right. exciting, um, or that you know whatever in LA cops will pull you over and will be just as corrupt as a cop here mm. sometimes, etc. Um, you know so. Sometimes you, 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 I feel like people here have a tendency to focus on that negative aspect mm. while forgetting that negative aspects such as those or others um, exist in every city. And it does have, I think that it does have a very big potential. And I think the fact that you're here interviewing people and that you have been here and want to come back reveals that. Mm. And not just you, that there are artists from... Berlin, from Belgium, from France, from, you know, ex New Yorkers, ex um, LA people from like Daniel and Kurt, etc., who have moved here. And more and more, this is one thing I have noticed more and more foreigners, you know, riding bikes and who are finding ways to live here or live here for extended periods of time. I have many friends who do that. Mm -hmm. So that, to me, that reveals that there's something here that people are noticing and that potential is sort of coming to a boiling point. Mm -hmm. and, and perhaps locals are more exasperated, but I feel like the fact that this is happening is, you know, points to mm -hmm. something interesting without so much negative aspects mm. yeah so many negative aspects what did first traveling outside of mexico teach you about mexico when you first got to spend real time outside mexico what, what did you learn about mexico by being away how much you actually love it mm. i mean i think probably if you had spoken to me prior to my living abroad um I would have probably also complained about the goddamn car potholes and da 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 and oh my god and look this day is just so dusty and polluted and this other day is just this and that and you know oh I went to the market and I couldn't find this and whatever mm. um, and where's my you know Italian you know orzo pasta blah 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 <laughs> I could find that in New York anywhere you know what I mean right, the sure. kinds of where's my orzo, oh yes. good grief you know <laughs> come on right. um, and then all of a sudden you're you go abroad and you realize, huh, there's all these great things I, I really do miss and I really appreciate about the city mm -hmm. and certain kinds of freedoms and, you know, the fact that neighbors, let's say, and, you know, here we are in, in many apartments and they're old and you can hear everyone, you know, basic things like if they want to throw a party, good for them. Mm -hmm. And I know I'm never going to call the cops because one day I'm going to throw a party. Right. I mean, this is a There's dumb a social agreement though, that nobody's going to call the cops. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, that would never happen in Europe. It's like mm -hmm. you get the cops called on you immediately at, you know, 11 PM, forget it. And even in, you know, in other places like the States too. So just silly little things of daily life like that, mm. that actually do make a difference. Mm. Or, you know, and, and there is a social contract here, despite the immensity, despite what seems sometimes like a rough city, um, where, you know, people actually help out and people actually look out. And that doesn't necessarily happen in other cities um, abroad. And I think... I mean, it's a cliche to speak of the warmth of Mexican people. <laughs> you know, it's horrifying. But... There is that too. And mm. sometimes you miss that. I mean, now, um, 
I spend a lot of time in Paris, and that's something that I was completely shocked by.、Mm. Even though I speak the language perfectly, blah blah blah, all of a sudden I was encountered this you know, very cold. Mind your own business.、Right. Don't don't look you know don't look too much into other people's eyes. Don't smile too much. God forbid they talk、yes. to you and they're insane. You know、right. that kind of thing. Or but they're that way to each other too.、Absolutely. So it's like well, it's, it's even stranger in a way when you see they're they're kind of ignoring one another, not just you because you're foreign. No, absolutely, it has nothing to do. They they wouldn't even necessarily know that I'm a foreigner,、mm. and it's still very much a very you know a very closed off thing,、mm. which is quite shocking. It you know and some people like that comfort. It makes them. Comfortable to know that they'll be left alone and they're not bothering anyone either.、Mm. But coming from here, I actually appreciate the fact that someone might help you cross the street if you have, you know, too many supermarket bags or、mm. whatever. Right, right, yeah. Right. You know, I was looking at your bookshelves and I noticed reading Los Angeles, the anthology put together by David Yulin, who's a friend, and I've had him on the show three times, I think. That is a valuable book for placing yourself in Los Angeles mentally before going there. But what were you, what did you read personally? Did you read books to do with Los Angeles before you went to spend time there and study there? Was did you have any sense of literarily getting your mind ready for the city? No, it was、uh, it was a total like I said it was so much just fate and sort of a leap of love and faith where you're just like all right let's go wherever whatever I don't even know what LA is like ah you know、um, and so and perhaps that's why I also had kind of a shock but the first thing I did read was City of Quartz、oh, yes. by Mike Davis and、it、wouldn't get you too excited about the city but it's informative yeah it was yeah yeah you just think oh. Good grief! Yes, everywhere it's just corrupt. Everywhere it's like Mexico, <laughs> you know, precisely one of those things. Um, but um, it was super interesting. And actually, this、uh, LA reader, I read in a class with Mike Davis.、Oh. So who knew when I was arrived? I would have never known.、Mm-hmm. But it would have been, you know, if you would have told me that when I arrived and was reading City of Quartz. Oh, you're going to be with Mike writing in、mm-hmm. class, and you know. I would have never believed you, but there it happened, and so he was my、uh, one of my favorite professors, and he suggested we read this and get the sense of place. And all of our writing exercises and things for that class were digging into the sense of place in LA, in your neighborhood, or whatever. And so the perfect example was this anthology,、mm. and、uh, it really made me feel. Like I adopted the city, and it really made me excited about living there. And I wish there were more readers like that for Mexico City.、Mm. Actually, which brings me to another question: Is you know what should I try to read as much as I can about Mexico City? Because I know I'll always be coming back. I need to learn more. What would you recommend? I mean, and not just what's the best or what's the one thing, but anything that listeners who want to get a sense of place of Mexico City, whether they. Read Spanish or don't, or whether they want fiction or nonfiction, anything. What can even if it's not directly related to Mexico City, what can get their minds ready for a city like this? Well, I think there are several things I would recommend. Of course, one big one, which I think now is is almost、uh, you know you you probably want to hit me with a broom for saying this, but is Roberto Bolaño, of、oh, course.、Sure. The savage, People have been saying it, yes. Yeah, savage detectives.、Mm. You know, he wasn't a Mexican writer, but became one、mm. because is he, is he considered 
Mexican readers have ad adopted his works essentially like well he's essentially Mexico. Yeah, I mean uh, so. th that book is very Mexico City. Mm. He captured perhaps like only a foreigner could, I don't mm. know, because you're inside and outside. He captured the essence the the different ways of speaking for different neighborhoods, mm. the 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 neighborhoods themselves, just a vibe really mm. of a place and he did it so well. I think that's part of the book's charm and part of why it became so, you know, popular and why mm. everyone loves to talk about it. But really it's it's a good introduction to Mexico City to get a feel. Of course it's another it's written in the seven, you know, it's it's happening, sorry, it's not written, but happening in the 70s, etc. Mm. So it's not exactly today's Mexico City, but mm. it's so so very much today Mexico City still. So there's that um but I would also recommend reading there's uh this really wonderful book called Vision de los Vencidos. I mm. don't remember it's translated into English and it's the last sort of writings of the Aztecs mm. as they were being defeated by the Spaniards. And you get a sense of the city mm. back then, Tenochtitlan, and you still get that by flashes here and there now in Mexico. You know, mm. the sense of these teeming markets and and this activity and then you know go, you go downtown and of course there's a chunk of pyramid right there right. and or in um, the subway stations the bits and pieces of the aztec society right there and you walk you're making your connection from line one to four or whatever and so oh, that's a that's a big aztec they're a mayan thing you know yeah and it's an aztec definitely mm -hmm. yeah it's a giant um it was uh i think for the uh, the god of Shoot, I forget, but it's it's almost like and now it's a fountain, but it's mm. a big old carved piece. Right, yeah. the, the one in Pino Suarez? Oh, oh yeah. Um, so, you know, there is. I would recommend that so mm. so that you feel these layers. I think it's a very layered city. Mm. So I would read something like Bolaño in tandem with something from that period, which would mm. make you know make a lot of sense. And I know there's a Mexico. I have it here, Mexico City Reader. Mm. Um, I believe it might be Ruben Gallo who co-edited it. And there's lots of small essays. Mm. Um, and there's always someone like Carlos Monsiváis, who was such right. a chilango, <laughs> loved everything about the city, walked everywhere, of course, lived downtown and just mm. wrote about the city constantly. I think he used probably the biggest lover of this city in the in recent times he's very much a chronicler especially of the uh, the 85 earthquake and its aftermath right he's sort of defined what the city was after that the, the nature of the civil society here mm -hmm. mm. yeah and he and he also just so he had many levels of writing some of it was very political and social mm. other times it's just lyrical almost and it's just these odes to a city he loved and lived well mm. you know um, or to cantinas, etc. And then there's people like um, David, of course, mm. David Lida, and and um, or Guillermo Fadanelli, mm. uh, just these urban, more you know, writers who are writing fiction, not necessarily nonfiction, but who give you a sense of the city as well. Mm. But um, I would also look at Holodovsky's films. Oh yes, I, I would I would watch them for any reason. But yes, as, yes, as, as as well, it's he, you consider him to be. A captor of something about the nature of this place. Yeah, mm. another listen like like Bolaño, another Chilean exile mm. living here, adopted somehow, mm. you know, by us, I would say, and um, 
he does capture some of this crazy energy that that lives in the city um again i don't want to sound like the big cliche of this like you know like arto when he came here or breton who were like oh mexico city is like sur living surrealism good grief you know uh okay thank it's not you that weird is yeah, it come on it's just that's the way we live, uh, you know, or, or this sense of like, oh, magical Mexico that, mm. you know, foreigners also cultivate, which can be, mm. you know, on the, on the limit of, of, you know, exoticism or, you know. I think you have to come from farther away than Los Angeles to think of magical Mexico. Absolutely. <laughs> LA is, is magical Mexico. I mean, yeah. it's an extension of... So I, do, of I do think of it as an extension of Mexico. Definitely. It's kind of one of the reasons I'm there because it's, you know, the food be, makes yeah. the food better. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> captures that spirit of of nonsense and absurdity, but also a very, you know, intense um there yeah, some some kind of intensity um that happens in the city. And and so many, you know, his films are shot in many locations around the city. Mm. Not El Topo, of course, which happens in, in the desert, but right. um the La Montaña Sagrada, the mm -hmm. holy mountain and uh Blood, uh, Santa Sangre, which in English is what? Holy blood? I don't know. They, it's, they just call it Santa, Santa Sangre. Sangre. Okay. Mm -hmm. So those two are very much about Mexico City, I feel like. Mm -hmm. So if you if you feel lazy about reading a fat Bolaño book, then just, you know, <laughs> enjoy Jodorowsky, mm -hmm. a Jodorowsky movie. I, I still regret that he, he never made the planned film he was going to make starring... I think Nick Nolte and Marilyn Manson that ran out of money or something. The, the guy has had a lot of ideas, and I'm sure he's not done. I'm, I hope he's not done. No, there's a, there's a, I, I don't know if I'm even supposed to, if this is like secret or not. But there's a foundation here that's fa giving him money for his new film, mm. and whether that film is exactly the one with Marilyn Manson, <laughs> who is going to somehow play. I, I can't even remember. I saw the, the storyboard for that. Oh At some point, there's like this giant head of Jesus that comes out of the <laughs> desert and has laser beam eyes and like exterminates people. <laughs> anyway, so. That sounds about right. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if it's that one, and that was the one with Marilyn Manson, I believe, or mm. if it's a different film that he just decided to strip the other one. Mm. But in any case, he's making a new film and people here are funding it, so. Mm. Now, you, you mentioned getting the sense, getting the feel of the pre-Hispanic life when you're walking around Mexico City in the markets. But I was yesterday at, I've been, of course, to Teotihuacan before, but yesterday I went to, this is a word that's hard for gringos to say, Ciudad Universitaria, mm -hmm. uh, the, the area, the, the larger area around the UNAM campus. I was looking at the museum there, and uh, we mentioned Juan Carlos uh, Cano. He said to me, Make sure you think about the sense of space there and the way that Ciudad Universitaria relates to the space around it, because it's exactly the same way as Teotihuacan does. And I thought, you know, this does. This wasn't built by the Aztecs, but it's you, you get these. I mean, the word that often comes up is, is a palimpsest. You know, you get these layers of history here. Do you do you feel more of that personally in Mexico City than in other cities where you can read these very distinct eras expressing themselves in all kinds of ways, no matter when the environment around you was built? I think, yes, because, of course, you know, if you go 
to Athens or Rome. You have these ruins right there and you're, you know, driving around them in a, you know, in your little Vespa or in a crazy cab or whatever, <laughs> who's like screaming at the top of his lungs. And you're looking at, you know, these columns and very, you know, and so you get that sense of history and, and it's very present, but it feels at least maybe it's because I'm from here. I don't know. But it feels much more alive here. Mm -hmm. There seems to be a continuum. You mm -hmm. know, the Greece, okay, that civilization is done. Mm -hmm. And those Greek, that you don't even speak that language, that Greek right. in Greece today, you it's know. Completely cut off. Yeah. And, and, you know, Romans today with their cell phones, the, are, it's hard to imagine how they could be wearing a toga and, you know, at the Parthenon, uh, sorry, not at the Parthenon, at the, in, in the circus or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's something here where the language, even though we're speaking Spanish and not Nahuatl, Spanish that we speak is full of Nahuatl words. Mm -hmm. um, there's a sense that, you know, these places have been, you know, like the Basilica of the Guadalupe Virgin. Mm -hmm. That was a holy site for the Nawa, the Nawa culture, um, that the fact that the cathedral downtown is right next to the pyramid because it was holy ground back mm. then and, and that was the way to sort of incorporate it and convert people into Catholicism. Mm. So there's there is this thing, of course, due to colonialism, but also in spite of it, that survives mm. and, that, and that sort of got integrated into contemporary... Mexico, the food that we eat um, mm. is still, there's lots of it that's very, very Aztec. Right, that's a, my favorite, Huitlacoche, right? That goes back. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And, and nopales, and I mm. mean, not to mention, of course, tortillas, etc. But um, even sweets like amaranth, you know, those amaranth and honey, turns out, I found out for a while, they were forbidden because mm. the Spaniards um, didn't want them to confuse it with the holy host. Mm, um, so yes. because they were made a lot of offerings to the gods were made with amaranth and honey and sometimes even blood you know mm. you would prick yourself and put a little bit of your blood in there so it was very similar in a weird way to you know the holy host and the blood of Christ or whatever mm. so they were like no you cannot cultivate or eat amaranth etc mm. um, it became like this taboo thing and then it never really stopped, of course. And today you can go anywhere on any street corner and eat these amaranth sweets that are delicious and healthy. Uh, um, but, you know, uh, so all of this is very present, even mm. though sometimes you don't re even realize that you're just living it every day, mm. which is, again, why it's very much alive. It's not like a dead culture that disappeared and a new culture that emerged. Mm. It's, a, it's a little bit of both. It seems like it must be a uniquely stimulating place for writing. Then tell me if that's true. I mean, I'm yes, I find <laughs> I find it to be, but I, I, in a different way, I also found LA to be a very stimulating place because it has so many cultures and so mm. many things happening as well. But but yeah, this layered, very particular historical layering, I think is is fascinating, and it may and it makes it's it's very um, daunting. Because how, how do you incorporate that into your writing? How do you, you know, stay away from it or do you, etc.? But it's also extremely stimulating, yeah. I've been speaking here in Colonia Condesa with writer, poet. Uh, did you call yourself a, a traitor to genre, was it? <laughs> traitor to genre, Gabriela Jauregui. 
Uh, muchísimas gracias, Gabriela. Gracias a ti. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can find much more at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks.